Man, way to take an Adele song. That is amazing. Not many people can pull that one off. All right, good morning, everyone. How's everyone doing? Real? Hey. Two people are doing great. Everyone's like, oh, it's May long. It's kind of crappy weather. Well, not right now. Not right now. Don't, don't come at me. Who's that? <laughs> Brendan? <laughs> uh, if you don't know this wacko who's like calling people out, uh, my name's Mike. I'm the discipleship director here. Um, and this morning we're continuing on going through uh, Mark's account of the gospel. Up to this point, we've seen Jesus' baptism, uh, his proclamation of the good news that God's kingdom has come near, his calling of his first disciples, or if that word's unfamiliar to you, his, his first followers, and his growing popularity in the eyes of the people he go, uh, sorry, popularity in the eyes of the people as he goes healing people and casting out demons. So today, we're looking at the healing of the paralytic. I was actually asked this morning, well, which one? And it's like, it's chapter two, so it's the guy coming through the roof. So uh, with that, let's maybe start by reading Mark 2, 1 to 12. It says, and when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So before we dive into this story, we actually need to understand a little bit about how Mark designed his account of the gospel. And so Mark has essentially uh, divided his account into three acts, with each act focusing on a particular theme. The first act, which is Mark 1 to about the first half of chapter 8, is focusing on the question, who is Jesus? It's getting at the identity of Jesus. And Mark actually only ever tells us what he thinks at the very beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, when he says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, or rather Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. From this point on, Mark hopes to influence us by not telling us what he thinks, but by showing Jesus, his actions, and then people's reactions to him. So the last three weeks, uh, we've focused on the first scenes of this first act. We saw John the Baptist introduced, who highlighted and pointed people in the direction of Jesus. 
We saw the summary of Jesus' message as he announced the good news that God's kingdom has come near. And then we saw the effects of God's kingdom coming near as Jesus confronts evil by miraculously healing the sick and broken, casting out demons and calling people to follow him. All of which, understandably so, increased his popularity with the people as huge crowds continually sought him out. So as we move into chapter 2, we change scenes in this first act. Yes, we see a continuation of what we have already seen, Jesus' power on display as he continues to demonstrate the nearness of God's kingdom. But this is also the start of a block of stories where we see how Jesus' actions produce a lot of different responses from people, particularly opposition from the leaders of Israel. However, the story doesn't begin with opposition. It begins with faith. So we're just going to break this down into two parts. Uh, So I'll quickly read again Mark 2, 1 to 5. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him uh, get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. And now it's, it's really this part of the story uh, that, that I think most of us like to focus on. I know I certainly do. And why wouldn't we? It's, it's a wild story. It's full of color and even amusement as we try to fathom the, the, the sheer pandemonium that must have been this particular moment. Not only is Jesus back in the city, but the house he's staying in is packed to the point where there's no room at the door. And now the story forces us to imagine four guys with their paralytic friend trying to get close to Jesus, but the crowd of people simply won't let them. Instead of giving up and telling their friend, well, maybe we'll catch him another day, they make their way, likely to the side or back of this house where there would have been stairs or a ladder to the roof. Roofs back then and in that area of the world weren't like ours. They were, they were pr- predominantly flat and actually usable space, particularly to cool off from the heat of the day. And now I always thought, how on earth did they break through a roof? And it actually, to my surprise, would have been quite easy. The house uh, would likely have been made with sun-baked mud and basalt stone. There would have been beams then laid on top of that. And then to fill in the gaps between those beams would be basalt stone without mortar and then laying on a layer of grass or reeds. And so um, despite the relative ease, it still would have caused a bit of commotion, especially inside the house. Despite this, Jesus clearly continues teaching, maybe even healing as he had been doing previously until they made a hole large enough to lower their friend. What's interesting is that the paralytic's encounter with Jesus is sparked by their collective faith, as Mark recounts, and when Jesus saw their faith, not the paralytics, not just the paralytics, but their faith. Now, this faith was, was not just a hope that perhaps Jesus would be able to heal their friend. The faith here was one of belief and perhaps even certainty that Jesus could and would heal their friend. 
Because how else could someone be motivated enough to vandalize someone else's property to get in front of Jesus? One biblical scholar notes that Jesus here sees faith in action. The determined friends must have believed that Jesus has the power to heal if only they could just reach him. Faith in Mark means more than simple belief. It shows itself in actions. And it is not thwarted by the obstructions of crowds, ritual taboos, or social rebuffs. Once again, we like to focus on this part of the story. And absolutely, we can see from this the importance. I've heard this, this preached a few times, and a lot of the times it goes to, you know, the importance of having friends like these or, or being a friend like this who will rise to the occasion and find a way to get someone or others bringing yourself into the presence of Jesus. Yet as soon as these faith-filled men accomplish what they set out to do, they disappear completely from the story which tells us that they are not actually the primary focus of what's going on. The narrative now continues forward as their valiant effort is successful and they get their friend to Jesus. However, Jesus doesn't respond how they, and even we, if we really ask ourselves and think about this, expected Jesus to respond in this moment. Friends and paralytic alike must have thought, we did it. We finally got our friend in the front of Jesus. He's finally going to be healed. But Jesus doesn't immediately say, get up and walk. Rather, it says, and when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Like, like what? Why on earth is Jesus saying that? To most, a response like this is at best insensitive and at worst inappropriate given the situation. The man is a paralytic and his friends just fought tooth and nail for a way to get him in front of Jesus, the man they've heard or perhaps even witnessed it firsthand as one who heals people. He obviously wants to be healed. And so to unpack this, we first need to ask the question, why would Jesus say this? Because the reality is, Jesus knows best what someone needs than they even know themselves. And if we trust him and know him to be who he says he is, this surely is not an insensitive or inappropriate comment on his part for someone who who wants healing. So this brings us to part one of two of this encounter with Jesus, that being the transformational and healing power of forgiveness. And so to get at the heart of Jesus' response, we need to actually understand a very commonly held way of thinking that many of the Jews of Jesus' day and ancient Jews of the Old Testament held to. And that thought being, if you do good and follow God's laws, he will bless you with things like health and wealth. And if you do bad, sin, and break God's laws, then he will judge and curse you whether that be with disease or some kind of poor health, barrenness, financial ruin, crop failure, or a combination of those types of things. And we see this very line of thinking in the book of Job, if you've ever read it. As readers, we have a unique perspective in the story because we know right from the very beginning that Job had done absolutely nothing wrong to warrant the catastrophes he experienced. Yet for most of the book, 
Job's friends attempt to convince him that he must have sinned and displeased God, and that what he was experiencing was proof of that as they believed it was God's judgment on him. So too, Jesus' own disciples held this view at least for a time, because it says in John 9, 1-2, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? They're essentially asking, is this man experiencing God's judgment because of what he did or because of what his parents did? God responds to this line of thinking at the end of the book of Job by essentially telling Job's friends, your logic is wrong. Yes, we experience the general rule that if we do good, we will likely experience good. Or if we do bad, we likely experience bad. If you're a genuinely caring person um, for your neighbors, you're more likely to be thought of as you know, a stand-up person, someone of high esteem. And if you commit a crime, you are more likely to go to prison than if you just didn't. However, the, uh, however, the world is far more complex and broken to be thought of in such a black and white way. Because we see some of the godliest people experience horrible things, and we see people doing wrong who not only get away with it, uh, but seem to prosper and gain from it. And despite God trying to point people away from this simplistic view of good and bad in the book of Job, as we saw amongst Jesus' disciples, many Jews of Jesus' day maintained this view. The paralytic then in this story likely experienced life in a similar way to the leper that we briefly discussed last Sunday, living a life of alienation and neglect. Thankfully, his paralysis wasn't a contagious skin disease, so so those who wanted could get close and build relationship with him like his four friends. However, the culture at large likely regularly reminded this man that he was a sinner and experiencing God's judgment. Perhaps even individual people went even further and committed malicious acts toward this person, hurling stones or insults, motivated by some twisted sense of righteousness and a desire to rid sin from their society. Not only that, but we're often our own worst enemy as well. So perhaps the man's harshest critic was himself continually ruminating on how God is angry with him, cursing him with paralysis. The cultural, and perhaps even his own personal understanding of his disability and sinfulness would understandably wreak emotional and psychological havoc on him. So we return to Jesus, his immediate response. As Jesus went from town to town proclaiming the nearness of God's kingdom by healing the hurt and freeing the possessed, his popularity grew, and with it, hope likely began to grow in this man and his friends to the point of near certainty uh, as seen in their faith in Jesus, a faith that led them to action, to not be defeated by the crowd, and to cut a hole in someone's roof just to get into the presence of Jesus. Yet, when the time finally came, laying at the feet of Jesus, the paralytic was met with a response he did not expect, a response that likely cut him to the core. He came looking for the external healing of his body, 
But what Jesus gave him was the far greater internal healing of his heart and soul by uttering the words, Son, your sins are forgiven. Yet again, we like to focus on the man's physical healing at the end of the story, which of course isn't a surprise. Healings like these are amazing and they do a powerful job displaying the coming of God's kingdom. However, if we're not careful, putting primary focus on the physical healing here can blind us to the far greater work of forgiveness that Jesus came to do as the transformative power of God's forgiveness is by far the greater miracle. Outside of my own personal experience with forgiveness, I've also experienced it secondhand, uh, seeing it happen with other people. And some, some years ago at camp, we were having one of our, our final evening chapels, and if you, if you have any camp experience as a, as a counselor, you know uh, that there's typically one night in particular that has a, uh, I'll say, a greater expectation of the Holy Spirit moving as the week's worship and teaching comes to a climax. And this was that particular night. I can't remember the exact topic, but kids were, were encouraged to go pray with their leaders, and leaders were encouraged to go pray uh, with, with kids. And there I was actually standing a little bit towards the back. Uh, moments like those always flared my social anxiety. What if someone I knew comes up and asks for prayer and I just blank on their name, which, yes, has actually happened. Um, and a bit of confession time, I also, you know, entertained uh, other self-focused thoughts, like, what if my prayer doesn't sound good enough? Or doesn't perhaps encourage the person the way they want it? All of which prevented me from engaging fully here. And so now, I wasn't standing at the back to completely remove myself from this moment, but I was really attempting to control who and how many people I uh, engaged with. Despite this, uh, a guy approached me who I could tell was having some kind of emotional response to the evening, and so I began priming myself to pray for this person, especially mentally preparing that I remembered his name. Um, but as they came up, they didn't actually say, can you pray for me? They said, give me a Bible verse. Now, on the outside, I am calm, cool, and collected. On the inside, I am derailing, like absolutely derailing. Like, oh no, this is way worse than what I was expecting. And it's far more out of my control. To be honest, I don't, like, I haven't memorized a ton of scripture, and I couldn't just give them John 3.16 or Jeremiah 29.11, for I know the plans I have for you. Um, he, he knew those ones already. And if we're really honest, they're kind of the Christian cheater verses. Um, so it was, a, it was a mental nightmare for me. But they're expecting me to give them something. So all of this being mentally processed at light speed, I'm thinking at best, I give them something and it's t a totally random verse that doesn't apply, or it crushes them. While I'm inwardly panicking, a thought comes to my mind, Psalm 32. So with not a single ounce of confidence, I tell them, Psalm 32. They quickly flip open their Bible and they begin weeping. Weeping. At this point, I have actually no idea what Psalm 32 says, um, which is actually horribly irresponsible of, irresponsible of me. If you're ever in that situation, flip to it first to make sure to confirm what you're hearing. 
Um, but he, he turned to me, thankfully, and came alongside me to show me the psalm. And so Psalm 32 starts, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I actually doubt they got past verse 1. In a moment, God's forgiveness proclaimed to him led to a profound reaction and perhaps a moment of inner healing. So Jesus seeks to give first what we truly need, forgiveness, and an invitation to enter into right relationship with God through him. Jesus sees the deeper issue that needs solving. All of humanity, from the paralytic to us today and everyone who came before him and will come after us, needs forgiveness. So Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, the word sin has picked up some very negative connotations over the decades. And so to hopefully dispel some of that, the biblical words for sin is the Hebrew word hata and the Greek word hamartia. And simply put, the definition of these words, the definition of the word sin, is to miss the mark. To miss the mark. So biblically, sin is failing to hit a mark. Failing to reach a goal. And we see this goal in the first two chapters of the Bible. All of humanity was made in the image of God and called to faithfully reflect and represent his character to everyone and everything in the world by loving God with everything we have and by expressing that love and worship through the loving of our neighbors as ourselves. That should sound familiar to a lot of us. However, we see in Genesis 3 that humanity strays from this goal. And throughout the rest of Scripture, we see the destructive actions humans do to one another, the very actions we still see today, whether that be the hurtful comments said to a coworker or loved one, to atrocious acts of violence and everything in between. The Bible does a great job shedding light on and revealing the nature of the human condition and how we've missed the mark of who we were created and meant to be. However, Scripture also reveals God's plan to rescue humanity from this failure. When God calls Abraham in Genesis 12 and confirms that call later on in Genesis 22, God says that this isn't just to bless Abraham, uh, but that through his offspring, all the nations will be blessed. And in Isaiah 66, we see a beautiful picture of people from all nations and tongues coming back into God's presence. This is the good news of God's kingdom coming near that Jesus proclaimed in Mark 1, 14 to 15. And it's likely this is the same message Jesus is sharing at the house in chapter 2, verse 2, when it says Jesus was preaching the word to them. God's rescue mission for all the nations has come full force in the person of Jesus, and God's kingdom coming near looks like people being healed, the possessed and oppressed set free, and people forgiven. So moving back to the paralytic, this is why Jesus proclaims the man's forgiveness. This wasn't an insensitive or inappropriate comment Jesus made to someone looking for healing because the man, like all of us, deep down needed to hear the words, your sins are forgiven. 
It's this forgiveness of missing the mark of who we are intended and called to be as image bearers of God that invites us back into God's presence to become who we are meant to be. And for the paralytic, this hit even deeper as this proclaimed forgiveness also told him that he wasn't paralyzed because God is cursing him. Rather, God had come to rescue him. However... It's at this declaration of forgiveness the story changes to really Mark's primary focus. So this brings us to part two of two for this encounter with Jesus, that being the authority of Jesus. So Mark 2, the second half of Mark 2, uh, five verses, 12, five, verses 5 to 12 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that, he said, um, that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. What appears at first to be a colorful story about another miracle done by Jesus quickly turns into a story of controversy regarding Jesus and his authority to forgive sins. So the scribes here were professional, uh, it was a profession, uh, a professional profession, that's smart, uh, and special, then they were specialized teachers of the Mosaic Law, which was found in the Torah, which is the first five books of the Bible. And they were devoted to the study and specific application of the law to all areas of life. They were essentially the watchdogs of right thinking and practice of the biblical law. So think along the lines of like a constitutional lawyer or judge, uh, kind of dissecting and understanding and applying Canadian law. In this encounter with Jesus, they represent the religious leaders of Israel and the growing criticism of Jesus as they take issue with him proclaiming forgiveness in this way. Jesus wasn't extending forgiveness because the paralytic had wronged him personally in some way. He was extending God's all-encompassing forgiveness of sins, which led these teachers to say in their hearts, why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The scribes' concern here is God's honor. They see Jesus speaking in a way only God has the authority to speak, and so they suggest he's blaspheming dishonoring God by speaking lightly or even flippantly about him. And so they essentially recoil at Jesus' proclamation and question his identity. Who is this guy? Who does this guy think he is? As they mentally respond by saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? And the reality is, they're not totally wrong in that. Forgiveness in this way is for God alone. We see it throughout Scripture. We've looked briefly at Psalm 32, but later on in verse 5 it says, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
Psalm 103, 2-3 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. Isaiah 43, 25 says, and this is God speaking, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Daniel 9, 9 says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. And this isn't an exhaustive list, but lastly, a part of Exodus 34, verse 7, which is really important because this one section is from uh, Exodus 34, 6 to 7, which is actually God's own self-disclosure of his own character. It's God, God himself talking about himself. And he actually says that he keeps steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Forgiveness isn't just something God does, it's a part of his character. As our creator and whose image we are meant to bear, it is only him we have let down by our sin, our failing to miss the mark, and forgiving sin is for him alone. Praise God that forgiveness is in his nature. So the scribes weren't exactly wrong. Only God can forgive sin this way. However, they were refusing to acknowledge that Jesus had any authority at all to speak like God. To them, he was an itinerant human rabbi. Jesus, we see, pushes back on their thinking and ultimately leads him to declare, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And we see him healed. So once again, we return to the paralytic who is now physically healed. Jesus had extended forgiveness to him just moments before, a statement that flew in the face of Jewish thinking of the day. How can he be forgiven? The proof of God's judgment, his paralysis, is clearly evident. However, he was just made well. So even according to their own logic, this man must be forgiven because he's no longer paralyzed. But it was Jesus who declared this forgiveness and brought him healing, things only God had the power to do. In fact, as I've mentioned before, these are things that demonstrate the coming of God's kingdom. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This, of course, being all about God's coming forgiveness. And Isaiah 35, 5-6 says, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, which is a beautiful image of those in God's presence being healed when his kingdom comes. Not only that, but the whole book of Isaiah is speaking about God returning to rescue his people by bringing his kingdom. Throughout Isaiah, God declares that he will come, but he also declares that his servant will come, doing all the things God promised to do. So all of this forces the readers of Isaiah to ask, well, who's coming to rescue us, God or his servant? And the really awkward answer is yes. Yes to both. 
And this mind-boggling reality is beautifully conveyed in Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know to mean God with us. What the scribes and other religious leaders of Israel were witnessing was, in fact, what they had been waiting for, God's rescue as he returns and brings his kingdom. However, like the man with paralysis receiving first what he didn't expect, so too God's kingdom was coming in a way these religious leaders had not expected. This Jesus wasn't speaking out against Rome, Israel's most current oppressor. And he wasn't preparing military and political um, action to overthrow them or undermine them and rescue the nation of Israel from underneath them. He was healing people. He was forgiving their sins and in turn criticizing the religious authorities. And so, instead of opening their hearts to Jesus, his authority and his unexpected use of it, like the once paralyzed man and his friends, these leaders hardened their hearts and accused him of blasphemy, the very charge they'll lay against Jesus in order to crucify him. So this brings us back to what Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, is trying to do through this section of his gospel account and to what he hopes his readers, us, are moved to do. That being beginning to answer the question, who is Jesus? And I say beginning because we're only in chapter 2. We have several other chapters of this going on. But who is Jesus? Because the way we answer this question will dictate who he is in our lives and what kind of authority he actually holds in it. Today, we actually see a wide range of responses outside and even inside the church to this question. Many people view Jesus as he showed himself to be, God come to rescue and usher in his kingdom. Others view him as a dangerous fraudster. Some simply have no idea. And still others view Jesus as a good moral teacher that we can co-opt some of his ideas to live our best lives and be our best selves. But beloved author and lay theologian C.S. Lewis shared his response on the matter in his book, Mere Christianity. If you haven't read it, it's amazing. You should read it. And he says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So in this introductory scene, Mark shows Jesus doing all these things only God can do, and he begins to show us the variety of responses Jesus provokes. Criticism by some, intrigue and amazement, but with no real commitment to discipleship by the majority, and commitment to Jesus as Lord of their lives by the few. Who is Jesus? 
Everything hinges on how we answer that question. So if you're here today and you're not sure who Jesus is or even think that he might be a fraud, I actually invite you to keep coming back and allow Mark to show you who Jesus is. Perhaps even pick up a Bible. If you want a physical one, come talk to me at the end of the gathering and I'll get you one. Or even just get a Bible app on your phone and read and reread the Gospel of Mark as we continue teaching through it on Sundays. And as we go through this, open yourself and commit to reflecting on the question, who is Jesus? And just see how you come to answer that question by the end. And to those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, then we're to continually, day by day, align and realign ourselves to the answer we are called to hold to, that Jesus is our King, Emmanuel, God with us. He isn't just a good moral teacher wanting to make our lives better with his sage advice. He is the fully God, fully human one who's rescued us and is ushering in his kingdom. And he empowers his church, us, all of us, to carry on his kingdom mission as we, individually and collectively, through the power of the Holy Spirit, live our lives with Jesus as our king. And if you want a very simple breakdown of what that looks like, take time on your own this week and read and reflect on Ephesians 4, the whole chapter. There you'll find Paul calls us to put off our old selves, to put on our new selves, which is created in the likeness of God, and to be kind to one another, forgiving people as God and Christ forgave us. This is the greatest commandment in action. We love and live for Jesus by loving and living for others. So wherever you find yourself, there's actually still more to Mark's retelling of this story. And so let's continue journeying through it these coming weeks with open hearts and minds as Mark guides us deeper into the transformative forgiveness Jesus offers as he shows us exactly who Jesus is. Let's pray. Father, we just we thank you and we praise you. It's all we can do that you've come to rescue us from, from missing the mark. That you've brought and are bringing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And as we reflect today and in the coming weeks on the question, who is Jesus? Holy Spirit, lead us into a greater understanding of who he is and who he desires to be in our lives. Emmanuel, God with us our unexpected king who brings healing and forgiveness. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Uh, Stand with me, church. In ancient times, the one who blessed raised their hands, and those wanting to receive a blessing did likewise. So soul sanctuary, may you know the authority of Jesus and live in faithful obedience to our king. May we experience and live out the transformational and healing power of God's forgiveness found in Jesus. And may we, through our lives lived under his rule, bring God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So now go and live the church and we'll see you next week.